1: They offer free shipping on all boots as well as free returns and exchanges and ship right to your door. Go to Tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today.
2: Welcome to the Foul Front Podcast, a part of the Waypoint Outdoor Collective. I'm your host, Ben Page, and this is your source for hunting, outdoors, and conservation conversations. In an eclectic and sometimes unorganized fashion, I appreciate you coming by. All right, welcome to the Foul Front Waterfowl Podcast. This week, I'm joined by Ben O'Brien, host of the Hunting Collective Podcast, powered by Meat Eater, a Bozeman conversationalist, author, writer, uh, hunting director at Meat Eater, uh, backcountry hunter and angler chairman, hunter, husband, uh, dad, and a white claw enthusiast. How'd I do there, well, Ben?
3: That's a pretty. That's a really good intro. I like it. I seem to have uh, really glommed on to the White Claw thing. Uh, yeah, I get. I get. I probably get more White Claw memes in the DMs of my Instagram than anybody in the history of the world.
2: Yeah. Now, do you do you actually do you actually like White Claw, or are you being paid by some sort of uh, green decoy company or something like that?
3: You know, I started drinking it as a joke because people kept. People like to call me a hipster and i like to i uh, like to lean into these types of things so i started drinking it as a joke and then one night i i discovered that i uh enjoyed it and so i just kept drinking it and i leaned further into the joke and now it's taking on a mind of its own as things tend to do yeah, of course of course uh so new to
2: bozeman right
3: yeah brand new to bozeman really Um uh, we've been here about 10 months i uh was lured here by the meteor, the new meteor incorporated team, when they were starting the company, and um, was happy to happy to make the trek. We were in Austin, Texas, and uh, I don't know if you could pick two different two more different towns than Austin and Bozeman, but they're both pretty cool. Um, and this one is is my favorite so far. So I imagine I'll stay here until they kick me out. Yeah, your
2: your wife and kid they like the area.
3: They love it, man. Yeah, it's family friendly area. You know, we're looking to. Grow our family, and they my wife and son both love to go outside, and they both you know love uh the un- unfortunately they don't love the cold weather, but this time of year the weather's beautiful, so we enjoy it when we can but it's it's a it's a good place to be i have I have zero complaints uh any any complaints I do I have are first world complaints, so I try to keep those to myself good good
2: uh so what do you do in your free time uh as far as hobby wise and you can't say Hunting, fishing, or shooting. Yeah.
3: Yeah. Well, um, nowadays I used to have other hobbies. Nowadays it's mostly just the things you said and being with my family. Um, those are about all that I have time for. But I will say, like, coming up, I was a huge sports fan. Um, my whole family were big baseball fans, big football fans, Ravens, Orioles, Redskins, uh, from where I grew up in Maryland. So we were, you know, we were, uh, Big sports fan. So I find that when I can find the time nowadays, I'll get in, uh, you know, an hour or two on the couch to watch a baseball game. Or, uh, I do also play, I will admit playing fantasy football with my friends from back home cause they love it. And I like to stay connected to those guys. So we do that. Um, that's about all all the free time I get anymore. Uh, a few hours a week, maybe if I'm lucky.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I hear you. I hear you. All right. How did you get into hunting? What's that story arc right there?
3: Oh, it's, i imagine it's pretty common you know on my podcast we talk to a lot of people from a lot of different walks of life and i'm lucky enough to be connected with those folks so i've heard heard lots of stories mine i imagine is fairly typical you know my dad was a hunter uh, throughout his his youth and into his 20s and 30s and then when he had my brother and myself he kind of got away from hunting as i think a lot of parents do when you're a nine to fiver and you have kids it's you need to be home on the weekends you need to be home in the evening so hunting is hard to, to, to get in there. And my dad, you know, during probably the first 10 or 12 years of my life, didn't do much hunting. Um, but lucky enough for me, we had a neighbor by the name of Bill Miller, who, who who was really into hunting and kind of showed me what it was all about. Um, first time. And then I went back to my dad and said, I want to do this. This looks awesome. And so he happily jumped right back in it with me. And we spent, man, I was, I think I killed my first deer when I was 12 and we probably spent the next 10 years hunting together around Maryland. It was, you know, it was pretty damn redneck. I mean, we shot whatever had antlers, if <laughs> a spike, a four point, whatever it was, um, that was fine with us. And we, you know, we had skinning parties in the garage. We fried backstrap. We, you know, that's what we did. And I feel,
2: I feel like every neighborhood, if, if they don't have one, um, which is, I think common, but needs a, a bill Miller. That is such an
3: yeah, a... Is, yeah. You know what I yeah. mean? Bill Miller is is one of the greatest people in my life. He he is I always call him the ultimate redneck. I mean, the dude wore buckskins. When I was a kid, he took me to muzzle shoots. We would do go to turkey shoots when I was a little kid. I'd be loading up like a fifty cal hawking, shooting at targets, trying to win a frozen turkey. I mean, we did we threw hatchets at old stumps. I mean, he he was He kind of just was that guy in our neighborhood. And, uh, I don't know if all the parents liked him, but all the kids liked him.
2: I was going to say, did he have his own, uh, kids?
3: Yeah. He had a daughter, but no sons. And so I was like his de facto son (laughs) and we, and we did, we, yeah, he, we rebuilt an old CJ seven together, uh, drove that Jeep around. We can't, we fished, you know, my dad was always there with us. So it was a good, we were a good trio. Um, And I always like to say, like, my best friends were two 50-year-old dudes (laughs) when I was, like, 14 and 15. But we had a good time.
2: That's awesome. Okay. So, um, you know, kill your first deer at 12, uh, obviously. You go through high school, you wind up in a
3: college somewhere, right? Yes. Yes. Uh, Yeah, I went to college in Maryland, a little town called Frederick, Maryland, which was about half an hour away from my uh, hometown, man. And – I didn't at the time. I, w- I was all I was going to be a guy that never left home. I mean, I think at that time I I felt like I love my family. I love my life. It was just kind of where I always was going to be in in Hagerstown, Maryland. But started going to college. Went to college at this little this little. Uh, you, it was an all girls school. Uh, like five years before I went there. Okay, it was called Hood College, and I was like playing. I guess probably playing the numbers at that point. But also they had a good journalism school, and that's what I wanted to do. So. I jumped in there and and went for it. I worked full time, worked full time while I was there. Took a bunch of credits. I'm, that was a pretty crazy time in life, and uh, somehow got out of there with a good GPA and a good resume to get the next job.
2: Two things on that: uh, what motivates a young man uh, to want to be a journalist?
3: Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I think at the time, you know, I I wanted to. I, I remember wanting to be a writer. Um, early, early on in my life, I remember there was an outdoor writing school in Canada and I couldn't afford to take the classes, but I just like pestered the, the quote unquote professor about, and I would send him stories and write things and then he would write me back. And we had an interesting relationship. And I just remember that that must have been 14 or 15 years old. So I just remember being interested in, in writing and reading and wanting to, to do that for a living. And then, you know, early on, I think knowing what my passions were, which were sports and hunting, I, I knew I wanted to, to write about one of those things. And so I started to do things like listen to, I must have listened to every Orioles game on the radio and read every Orioles like, article I could get my hands on, similar with hunting. And so it's, it's a weird foreshadow to what I do now, you know, which is, is write about and, and talk about things that you love. So I think I cued in on that pretty early on in my life that, that. I love to write, and that there was thing, other things, hobby type things in my life that I loved, and if I could connect those, I'd be a pretty happy dude. so um, I'm glad that i I'm glad that I went that way.: Awesome.
2: Uh, the second thing I wanted to ask is what what's up with Maryland's flag? <laughs> How I, I, so? It's so, it's, I don't know, it just seems so gaudy um or something <laughs> of that nature. and also when I think of Maryland, I do not think of rednecks. So that's uh yeah. put that on my I can't really I, I don't
3: know that I could ex- explain Maryland's flag all that well, although that there's a lot of dudes that I know that have like full t shirts that are just like the flag colors and it, it is gaudy, I'll give you that. A lot of Maryland flag tattoos where I come from. But there's there's kind of two sides of Maryland. There's the the Western Maryland side, which is where I come from. And my wife comes from eastern Maryland, which is you know more of what everybody thinks of. Blue crabs chesapeake bay uh, baltimore annapolis uh, naval academy it's just a kind of a different culture there but where, where i came from just kind of the panhandle of maryland we were 10 minutes from pennsylvania 20 minutes from west virginia you know i j- always jokingly call it east west virginia where i grew up um we could drive we could drive to virginia in five minutes 10 minutes so kind of just in that little sliver of maryland that stretches in toward appalachia and um It was, yeah, it was pretty, at least my version of it. We lived in suburbia, but we we were properly redneck um, and it's, it's still that way when I go back there. So I I like it.
2: Excellent. Now, the next thing that I could, uh, you know, drum up about you is that you then worked for Yeti uh, after that. Uh, Now, is there any space uh, that you'd like to talk about between college and
3: Yeti? Yeah, lots of space in there. Lots of space. Um, I came out of college working for the NRA, matter of fact, and got a job. I was a, I got, well, I actually got a job. I was going to be a sports writer. Got a job pretty quickly at the Washington Post as a, as a sports writer, and then another smaller magazine in Baltimore. And decided that my dream job of being a sports writer was terrible, and that all I was going to get to do was watch other people do things and write about that, and that wasn't what i wanted to do it was pretty depressing at the time because i was gonna you know my dream is to be a sports writer so i ditched that dream and had a had a buddy that um was working at the nra and, at american hunter magazine he quit to go to to work in under armor he i ran into him at a bar and he goes hey man like you could be a hunting writer that'd be cool and i think at the time i was like i don't know that that's a thing i never i wasn't i wasn't aware people did that for a job and um. Lucky enough, he put me in, I put my resume in, and got the, got the job and ended up working for the website for American Hunter at the NRA for about three and a half, four years, and did a bunch of writing, wrote for the print magazine, traveled to the out west, did a bunch of hunting, kind of discovered that there was a career out there in the hunting industry for me, and that was the, you know, kind of the first, my first break in the industry uh at the NRA.
2: Awesome. Okay. So then you switch over to Yeti. Um yeah. and you worked for that. how how long did you work for them?
3: Uh it would have been about three and a half years um in total. Yeah, I was was one of their I don't, know, I don't want to say early employees, but like I'm around employee number one hundred. I was there for about three and a half years. By the time I was gone, there was five hundred employees or so there. So quite a quite a run. Yeah, yeah.
2: Uh you know, in all that time, uh, you know, writing for the NRA and then Yeti uh what are some what are some of the most memorable experiences uh in places that you went uh for your job there
3: yeah yeah I, man I've had quite a lucky you know 12 years or decade or how long it's been that I've been doing what I've been doing um I've done particularly at Yeti but also at the NRA and other places I've been done some amazing things I've of I think I've hunted every province in Canada, but one, um, I've hunted man, I just don't want to, you know, surprise sounds douchey to list them all off. But uh, I would say that one of the better experiences I've ever had was in Nepal, uh, hunting blue sheep. I've been about two and a half years ago now for a Yeti film that we came out with on a, on a, uh, hunting guy named Cole Kramer. Who's a good buddy of mine. We went over to the Himalayas and trekked into, um, western nepal which is pretty untouched into a region called the Rakum region um which really doesn't see a whole lot of westerners unlike everest and the story there is crazy it took me a long time to tell it but it was you know to say that was my job at the time uh still kind of shocks me and so we've we did some other pretty big films at yeti including going up to the northwest territories on a sheep hunt with the ike and guy eastman kind of chasing their grandfather's legacy think that'll be a Yeti film coming up sometime this fall. So, did did some amazing things while I was there, but um it, it it was a very good run for for that time in my life.
2: Nice. Nice. So now, which one came first? Uh the Hunting Collective or uh Meat Eater for you?
3: Uh, the Hunting Collective came first. That's something um that stretches all the way back in about 5 years. Um and probably illustrates some of my <laughs> laziness or maybe a lack of gumption when it comes to starting a podcast. Um, I was on a, a hunt with Joe Rogan in, in British Columbia about five or six years ago. And he had a podcast. Well, I, w- I worked for a magazine. I thought magazines were the only thing that mattered. He started telling me all about podcasts and that I should do one. And I said, I would and uh, about f- came up with the hunting collective and then three or four years went by and I was working my butt off at Yeti and doing a bunch of other things, just never quite got it off the ground. But um, I would say about six months before Renella called me to, to ask me to join up with Meat Eater, I had already kind of recorded some, some things and had designed um, everything about the hunting collective that I wanted to do. And then when he started to describe the company that he wanted to start, I figured why not? You know, why not go ahead and launch the hunting collective and launch it with Steve as the first guest and, and see where that took us if if I did join uh Meat Eater. So I mean they were they were very close, maybe like six months with each other. Um, but I did have you know, probably about fifteen or eighteen episodes in the can prior to actually officially joining Meat Eater.
2: Yeah, I remember listening to your first uh episode and I remember thinking, who is this who is this guy? And then I, I didn't even really, to be honest with you, I was just in my research portion of, you know, starting my own podcast. And I was like, okay, who's this Steven Renella guy? Uh, who's this Ben O'Brien guy? Um I just was, I had, you know, kind of no clue there and hadn't really done any research uh, to that point. But um so after all that, just to say, I'm sure you'll be nominated for some sort of uh communication awards coming up here uh this next year but how does it feel to have the longest running streak at number one uh over at the prestigious foul front waterfowl podcast review
3: you know it feels great i gotta say i mean i saw this coming it's something that i knew i would you know i really knew i would achieve over the years um i didn't i'm really proud to to have achieved it so quickly and then keep it so consistently so I'm really just want to congratulate myself. I mean, I'm yeah, I'm doing great.
2: <laughs> yeah, no, you you really did. Like for five weeks in a row there, you just it was uh I was people were like, hey, stop stop putting him at number one. I said, I can't. It's just it's so good. <laughs> talking uh some of the stuff that you've been doing um at the hunting collective, I think is pretty it's it's exactly what we need. And so I was gonna ask you, um, you know, what's your goal and what's your message? Why what is the hunting collective?
3: Yeah, I mean I'm it's hard to explain and it's always moving, but I think I think when I started I had this idea of what it needed to be and that's morphed over time and as everything should, I imagine. Um, but it always comes back to I, people have said that people have called me a philosopher that is not that is not close to what <laughs> what I am and that is an insult to all real philosophers out there. Um, but I just there was a time in my life and and that I was around a lot of non hunters for the first time. And that was in Austin, Texas when I was working for Yeti and I was around a lot and I, I was the hunting guy at Yeti and there was lots of people in my life who didn't do what I did and were asking very blunt and obvious questions about hunting that I had never considered before. Um, very, you know, germane questions to what we do, but something that if you're in a hunting, you know, kind of an insular hunting space like I was at the NRA or other places I've been, you should ever ask yourself those things. And I became kind of like the guy at the cocktail party that people would send other folks to if they had a problem with hunting. And so, over that time, I realized that one, I needed to be better at explaining um, what hunting was to me, why I did it. And then knowing all the folks that I've known in the industry and having all the great conversations I've had, I was like, well, I'm having this conversation on it weekly basis with my friends and colleagues why not you know put those two things together so i imagine if you asked me what it was was just exploring the why of hunting but it's also just you know it's part of just my personality to to have fun and and be random and and just and and react to things as they happen so i imagine that's that's there's that's baked into the dna of the podcast but but i really just want to find out why it is that I do this and why it is that I love it so much. Um, so I can better explain it to other people.
2: Awesome. Yeah. Cause I was going to, you know, like what, what prompted you to go out and talk to an animal rights activist? I understand the, um, you know, going out and talking to, uh, what was the professor's name?
3: Um, uh, Robert, Robert C. Jones.
2: Yeah, absolutely. So I can see, you know, entering the um, discourse ring with somebody who, you know, is has a responsible, you know, communication um, boundaries. And I just uh, I was like curious, like what motivated you or, you know, how did you stumble into finding uh, the animal rights activism person?
3: Yeah, I mean, we we did a a meat eater live podcast in Sacramento this year. Uh, It would have been in like February. And there was a group called Anonymous for the Voiceless there uh, to protest our Mediator Live podcast. And Ryan Callahan and I were, prior to the show, decided we would go out and talk to these folks. I mean, they were standing in front of our show with the audience was was piling in and they were in V for Vendetta masks, holding TV screens, showing factory farm like slaughter and things. And so... I went out. We went out and talked to the the folks, and we realized that they were animal rights activists, but they had really nothing. They just were looking at meat eater the name and protesting that. And we got to talking, and and I told the the guy that was there outside. I said, "Listen, man, you know we're all basically on the same side here." <laughs> and and I, I think are the that, same
2: uh, or similar. Yeah, I was like, I
3: don't reason like factory aren't. farms. I don't like whatever's yeah. on your TV screen. There, I'm not into it either. I don't know what what you're expecting to hear out of me, like defending that um that's there and so that that really kind of that interaction kind of spurred me to think of like I need to talk to these people and understand them and and I think that's a bedrock of of not only you know our community of hunters or at least it should be but it's just a it's a extension of our humanity to reach out and and have a dialogue constructive if it can be with, with people we don't agree with so i just went in search with You know, with in mind that I was going to Berkeley to talk to some other folks that there were, I'm sure, I was like, I'm sure there'll be an animal rights person hanging around Berkeley I can talk to. And so, I started looking at um, what groups were legitimate enough and had done enough that I felt that they could really add to the conversation. And so, we found direct action everywhere and connected with them and they connected me with their their press coordinator, their spokesman, Matt Johnson. And then we decided to sit down and chat and and throughout the that entire experience, he was a nice guy, great, uh, a great guy. And we had lots of good conversations, um, when it came to the actual, you know, podcast and, and talking about what he believed, I felt like it was, there was a lot there for me to just be frustrated and angry about, but there was also some stuff there that showed some light at the end of his kind of ideological tunnel, um, but I was glad to have done it, you know, because I think it's it's very important to challenge ourselves in this day and age where we like to retreat to our um, ideological corners and, and kind of believe only in one thing and follow one through line with our lives. I think that is incredibly counterproductive. And so I was yeah. glad to have done that. It was challenging. Um, I'll admit to, you know, being stressed out and scared at some points about what it was going to come out to be, but uh, it turned out you know, I think to be productive.
2: Yeah. I, you know, I can, uh, I appreciate it because um, my, my brother who is actually a philosopher, he has a degree in it. And uh, I would think anybody that knows him would call him that as well. Um, And then my sister-in-law, she is a, uh, I would say pretty devout uh, vegan. And uh, so my brother practices uh, vegetarianism, unless I'm in town, then he'll go get a burger with me. Um, and so the conversations that I always have with them about hunting, I always thought would is something that needs to be kind of in the public discourse and rhetoric. Uh, and so I, I appreciated seeing that on, on your guys's, uh, on your show there. So now you guys, um, at the meat eater, at the hunting collective, you guys talk a lot about, um, big game, I'd say, um, primarily. And, uh, but I know that, uh, you do dabble in a little bit of uh, waterfowl hunting and I would be, I think off topic probably if I didn't mention or ask you any waterfowl questions on a waterfowl hunting podcast. Um, Sure. So my first question is, is, so where's the, where's the waterfowl content on meat eater?
3: Yeah, that's something, you know, as the director of hunting, uh, that's something that I'm very keen on. (laughs) I've been, we are actively looking around for ways to, to jump in that in a way that, you know, makes sense for us. And as we grow as a brand from what, you know, from really Steve Renella and Steve Renella's ship into a, a larger platform, you know, we gotta we gotta figure that out. Uh, we're pushing hard on fishing right now and you know, people people say it's it's funny how people people say that, you know, meat eater itself is kind of like a Western big game thing. And there's, of course, elements to that. We live in Bozeman. That's that's kind of that influence is, is laid bare. But, you know, we've, Steve has done a wonderful job in the past of, of covering small game and making that important. And we, you know, beat the turkey hunting hammer, uh, the turkey hunting drum very, very loudly every year. Um, did so this year. And so I imagine, and I know there's at least one mediator episode this year that's waterfowl related. So I imagine once we get to, to in December this year, we are going to start discovering our way. Uh, into the waterfowl space because it's it's something we love to do. Um, yeah, who's the most another... avid
2: waterfowler uh, in, in the office?
3: You know, Callahan is. Callahan can turn a bird man. Like I've seen him just, I've seen him. Uh, he can talk to just about any animal, so I give him that credit. But I would, I would go with Callahan and Renella are both pretty, pretty avid. It's just a time thing. We do it, you know, rather than the hardcore whitetail or waterfowl guy that just goes after that single species we kind of do it in in kind of short periods of time when when it when it suits our season the seasonality of what we do so um no i don't think we have anybody here that's just full-on waterfowl but we're uh keeping our eyes and ears open to to make sure we we get those perspectives
2: so now uh talking a little bit to you know your duck hunting experience or goose hunting i don't want to be selective there um but uh you know what's kind of your story in waterfowl hunting?
3: Yeah, when I, growing up, we didn't do a whole whole lot of waterfowl hunting. I mean, we we goose hunted probably once or twice a year in Maryland. Um, never did much duck hunting, but much like everything else in my life, when I entered the hunting industry and just just discovered these abilities to travel and do these things and write about them, you know, waterfowl has has been again. I kind of like. Every time I go duck hunting or goose hunting or crane hunting or whatever it might be, I find myself wishing that I could just do that. And every time I go whitetail hunting or elk hunting, I find myself wishing I could just do that and get really good at it. <laughs> and so, I think I feel about waterfowl hunting much like I feel about everything. I, If only I could just do that <laughs> and focus on that. Um and so you normally I think over probably over the last decade I've I've got I get two or three or four duck hunts in a year, um or, or waterfowl hunts, depending on what it is. So last year I didn't get any in just because of the move and coming out west and trying to figure out life rather than um hunting. But this year um I'm I'll be on Maryland's Easter Shore, uh hunting geese, probably hunting some sea ducks some other things like that. So I mean uh, I'm I uh I'm jealous of, of the folks that, that that get to and, and desire to only hunt a single species or, or really focus on. Cause it's, it's to, to, to see it as a craft, I think is something that interests me.
2: Yeah. I, uh, I always kind of go through this thing in the summer, like right about this, right about now, you know, uh, the season is over the horizon and looking, looking forward to it. And then I start thinking to myself, Hey, I start looking at that bow hanging up in my gun rack. And I'm like, you know what i'm gonna get after some whitetail this year and uh that's all fine and then as soon as birds start flying or as soon as we get a uh um an open season for waterfowl or the state north or south of me does i find it very hard to be sitting in a a tree stand or a ground blind when i could be out waterfowl hunting so
3: it's great man i i I, you know like i said i it's one of those things that every time I do that do it, I go, why don't I do this more <laughs> every single time? And now I live quite close to the Gallatin River here and there are I mean, there are more birds in this area than I ever thought there would be. So um sure. I imagine when we roll out of deer season here and, and into into waterfowl season dis December, I will be I will be um chomping at the bit to get out and and throw a few decoys in the river or whatever I gotta do to, to get, kill a few ducks and then to eat them too i mean that's that's man they're you know pickled gizzards is a favorite around here and many other things but um just straight seared duck breast is is well worth any trip
2: oh yeah i didn't ever believe it until last year when somebody made me do this i butterfly a breast a big breast out and uh just some olive oil and Montreal uh, steak seasoning, two minutes on one side, one minute on the other, and uh, that is uh, the way to eat duck. I'll tell you. Yeah, man,
3: sear it, but eat it rare. Yeah, no, I like to. You can leave the fat on it and the skin on it. That's it's it's a little tough. You got to get skilled at the leaving it crispy. But if you can, man, if you can master that, that's a good time. My wife at first was very skeptical of duck, and I I think maybe two years ago. I went on a hunt with Tony Vandemore at Habitat Flats, and um, this was something that kind of disturbed me. I went there not not to down Habitat Flats; it's a great place, but a lot of the clients left their ducks behind, and so um, they were like, "We have these ducks." I was like, well, "I'll take every single duck I can fit in this Yeti cooler." <laughs> and so I ended up with a pile of ducks in my freezer, and we ate we ate a lot of duck that year, and it was it turned my wife and me around on on what it was.
2: Isn't Tony uh, a great guy? Uh, the oh, first yeah, time and I'm, I'm a nobody and it took, I mean, I almost had to kick him off the phone because uh, we were just talking about kids and, uh, you know, getting them in the outdoors and just a good guy. So,
3: yeah, great dude. Yeah. I got to spend some time with him and his wife. And at the time she was pregnant with their second child. You know, my wife was pregnant with our first child, I think at the time. And and. You know, he's just like, again, one of those guys that has built something, um, just a good person, a good family man, you know, all around, but is, has built something, has a vision for what Habitat Flats is. And, you know, I, I admire that a lot. He's, he's, he's a classy dude and stand up, stand up individual. Somebody, you know, really somebody to be admired within our world.
2: Yeah. What was your, what was your impression of his operation that he has down there?
3: You know, I only spent, we were doing a photo shoot for Yeti and I only spent two days. It was one of those things where I wished I had um, spent more time down there in Habitat. Um, I, I would say that like it's ambitious what they do, you know. It's it's ambitious to pull in that many clients and to pull in that many birds. Um, it's it's ambitious and it's fast-paced and it's all, you know, it's, it's the engine is revved at all times and... You know, Tony's like one of the only people that would be able to keep all those things rolling. We had two pretty good duck mornings there. Nothing, nothing amazing. I think we limited out one morning and then, you know, shot a few ducks the second, second morning. But just, you know, the way that the people that are there see him as kind of like the Michael Jordan duck hunting or whatever, (laughs) whatever analogy you might use. Uh, It's cool. It's just cool to see that and the way that people think of him and he's earned it because he knows his stuff, man.
2: Now I might, uh, I might ask you if you're brave enough here to do this. This is kind of a, a big one. Um, but do you dare to, uh, tell me your impression of waterfowl hunting and waterfowl hunters, maybe in contrast to, um, other hunting types or peoples? Yeah.
3: Yeah. I mean, I'm, I generally try to answer every question asked to me so I can hit that one up. I, you know what? Um, there's a, there's a big part of me that, like I said, when, when I think of waterfowl hunters, I think of the commitment it takes to be really good at it and really into it. Not only from a calling standpoint, but from, from just a time, energy and money standpoint, what you have to put in. I mean, if you're, if you're nuts about snow geese, what you have to, to, to do to make that work, or if you're nuts about, you know, Canada geese or, or ducks or whatever it doesn't matter the the amount of gear and time spent and the refining of the craft i mean i've hunted like i've done the boat races and, and public land in arkansas where guys are just humming on public land and trying to find the proper hole in the timber and racing other guys and shouting and yelling and water splashing and dogs are, are jumping in and out of boats i mean those things are I always found waterfowl hunting to be hectic so it takes somebody that's a little bit crazy to just uh, <laughs> to, to jump straight into it. So I I admire it man. I, you know every listen, every little niche within our hunting space has a stereotype. Uh, all of them do. And I I have come to just love to run into a guy with all his stickers on his on his trailer and the big chaw in and like a fucking waterfowl vest on with the call a lanyard like, I love to run into that dude because that dude is, is a little bit crazy. And that, <laughs> that, sure. that makes for an interesting conversation.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I think one thing I think that differentiates, um, and I see this all the time and I fully acknowledge this uh, as my flaw in uh, hunting, whether it be turkey hunting or uh, whitetail hunting, you make a decision at some point. It's to cross the river there. Or it's to get up and move after, you know, at this time, um, to, you know, sneak around this bush or sneak around that bush. And I'm, I've just found that I just get racked up with every single possibility that you can do. And then I'll always like beat myself up for, uh, choosing the route that I did. If it, if it didn't came and it just always leaves me wondering. I've got this mind that's always ticking. And so I always found that, uh, waterfowl hunting is a little bit more forgiving in that sense uh where okay well that sucked that group didn't do it so let's change something real quick um and so i don't i don't know if uh, maybe you experienced that or not um but that's kind of how i feel about it
3: yeah i mean duck hunting is i mean i'll be i'll be honest like I, i got a lot of buddies that like to go solo hunting and and find a lot of value in like just being by themselves and going out in the mountains or wherever they are, sitting in a tree stand all day by yourself. I, I That's great. I like it, but I like being around people. You know, I like the communal nature of hunting a lot of times. So that's what, that's one thing about duck hunting that I, that I enjoy. And I, like you said, I think it's a little more forgiving in the way that like you're all in a blind. If you get some birds working and somebody uh, waves their gun barrel in the air, does something stupid and you, and you, and they bust and, roll out of there I mean there'll be some if you're in a good spot there'll be some more more behind but if if there's a a giant buck you've been chasing and and he comes down the right trail and you do the wrong thing and he and he breaks out of there there's a little more hopelessness (laughs) where that's concerned so I just I just think duck hunting is I mean you have you laugh more you're with your people more man and so for those reasons like I said it's it hits me in those in those places and and like I said having Having eaten almost all all the waterfowl I can get my hands on, there's a lot to be said there, too.
2: So you've done something that's, uh, I think, unique and probably would be on most people's uh, bucket list. And that's uh, hunting with literally like the king of waterfowl um, or the, the original duck commander
3: himself. Um, how
2: long ago was that?
3: Boy, what did, not long ago, like two years ago, maybe three years ago, it was like at the tail end of the Duck Commander. Uh, yeah, I feel deal. like a lot
2: of people see the Duck Commander and they they only see that side of it, especially us, uh, you know, the younger guys, the newer guys that weren't around uh, for when Phil was actually, you know, when he was turning the calls out in his uh, shop behind his house and um, kind of growing that. And a lot of us just remember the TV series um and not not talking about the VHSs the Duckman VHSs
3: oh um, yeah man <laughs> that's I the I watched real... the Duckman VHSs that shit was awesome like it was one of the, <laughs> yeah. one of the coolest things there ever was
2: <laughs> Oh gosh Duh. just so many <laughs> i remember those were at my uh grandpa's uh his like fishing cabin that we had out there and i remember not really understanding it when i was you know younger But, uh, coming back now, watching them online and stuff and where you can find the clips. It's, that's like the original, original hunting, uh, you know, YouTube.
3: Yeah. I found myself around the duck commander times arguing with people. They'd be like, we don't want to deal with those guys. You know, they're just reality. I'm like, no, they're not. They're the best duck hunters that there are. They just happen to get really popular on reality TV, but they are the best. And they've been the best for about mm, two decades now, maybe more. Phil probably three decades. Um, yeah. And so, you know, they got turned into cartoon characters on TV and I mean, they did fine and profited off of it and, you know, many, many good things have come out of it for them. But I think in the duck hunting community, or even yeah. in the hunting community, I mean, some people thought that they lost their street, ca- street cred when I can tell you they hunt every day of the season, every single day, TV show or no TV show. And so, um, that's just, that's who they are. And it's, it's, um, they're every bit as duck, uh, hunting fanatics today as they ever were. And it's, you know, regardless of, of bobbleheads or not, you know? Yeah. How was that experience? It was awesome. I mean, I, like, I had come, I, I got to know Jace pretty well over the years. And, um, they, you know, invited me to come down there. And another guy named Justin Martin, who's on their crew, I've become pretty close with him over the years too and and got to go down there and, you know, they have a, uh, (laughs) it's funny enough. We got, we got there, we got out of the truck. There's a bunch of duck hunters all assembled at the little dock where they let off. And there's like Kirk Cameron is standing there. And so so I was more like starstruck by Kirk Cameron. (laughs) I'm like, Kirk Cameron, are you serious? Uh, what? (laughs) And so uh, I got over that, but then I got to sit next to Phil and a duck blind in between Phil and Si for a good bit of the morning. And we shot some ducks in the morning, the first morning. And they're just—it's just—they're just ribbing each other like a family. You know, Jace is doing all the work and chiding Phil for not doing a damn thing, and and Uncle si is sitting there, and and these guys can shoot like a, a teal, a full like a passing teal without even shoot its head off. And I can't even, I'm 10 feet behind it trying to catch up. And so to see those guys, what they do, how they talk. And there was, that was in the morning and then the afternoon that they, they were going to film a bunch of stuff. And I got left just by myself with Phil Robertson, duck Hunting, just me and him in a, in a blind. And, um, I could probably talk for three hours about that experience, but he called in, uh, a mallard Drake for me. And we were just, he called it in, it came in, it cupped up, it came straight into the blind. He called it, you know, almost to the water, called me, told me to stand up and shoot it. And I, I shot it and he just looked over and he goes, smooth off. <laughs> I was like, oh, he said it.
0: He said <laughs> it. He said the thing. That's, he said a, uh,
2: that's a, I mean, you don't, you're not the same person uh, that you were entering that blind. I'm sure coming out of it.
3: Oh, you no, know? You know, the best thing about that whole thing was I, we we're sitting there and things were kind of dead in the afternoon. And I said, um, Phil, what's your, you know, what's your favorite? Cause I did not know what to ask the guy. Like, what am I going to say to Phil Robertson? And so I just said like, what's your favorite way to cook doc? And he, well, gumbo. And then for like an hour and a half, he, he went over and then you cut the onions and you let it simmer for like an hour. And then you cut the celery and it simmers for another hour. And he told this story about gumbo that went on for so long that I forgot what we were even talking about. And, uh, so if you want to, I should have, if I could have recorded like the one hour gumbo session that he gave me, I think we probably could have released that as a podcast. It would have (laughs) been, would have been a good listen, but yeah, it was pretty cool. There's a photo that my buddy Sam Soholt took of me of, um, Phil, me on the front of Phil's boat. Phil driving with with his dog sitting beside me. That that I got framed in my house. It's a pretty special special memory. I'm I'm lucky to have had that that time. That was and if it never happens again, doesn't matter. That that was like you said. It's hard to be the same person you were after after that.
2: You know that's that's a great story, Ben. But I think you really messed this up because this whole time I've been thinking, what the hell was Mike Seaver or excuse, Kirk Cameron doing? Uh, on a freaking in in the marsh.
3: (laughs) Well, Kirk Cameron was like friends with the Robertson. I didn't,
2: I I didn't know that.
3: Yeah. They're like close friends. Um, and they met, I think through probably church would would be my guess, but he was there, I think with one of his family members and he goes down and stays with the Robertson's for like a week, every year duck hunts and he was just hanging out there. I just remember being like, what, what What are we talking? What are you doing here? Um, I don't know that's, if I was starstruck or just struck by the fact that Kirk Cameron is just hanging out, having a Mountain Dew. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. Well,
2: uh, what other, you know, waterfowl have you chased in your day? What would you say is like your most, besides obviously uh, those two that you've mentioned, the most memorable waterfowl hunt
3: uh, you can remember? Yeah. Good, good, good question on that one. Um, you know, I've hunted, I hunted the Great Salt Lake. A couple of years back that was fun that was a good time great salt lake's a very interesting place interesting people i you know i would say i hunted crane you know sandhill cranes a couple of times in love at texas i found that to be man really interesting the way that you set decoys i mean i shot turkey loads at these things and you shoot them and they fold like lawn chairs and fall out of the sky and um you know once you get an up close look at what a sandhill crane is you, you yeah, if you're like me, just fascinated with the bird and where it comes from. And then you get to taste them and you're like, well, okay, that's that makes it even better. So I, I think crane hunting just for the bird, you know, I mean, I don't yeah. know that the actual hunting like in an A frame in the middle of a, you know, Milo field in, in, you know, northern Texas is like the most exciting landscape, but the bird itself was really cool. And then eating them, I don't know that I would agree that the like the ribeye of the sky. I mean, the ones that I've eaten have been real, real good, but not like knock your socks off like some people describe. So I'll give it like the flank steak of this guy or something like that.
2: (laughs) Um, I think those people that are probably saying that it's the ribeye of the sky are are going from like overcooking their mallards maybe um, to (laughs) eating eating a crane. Being from Nebraska, where they're like they're protected there in Nebraska, uh, it's always been really weird to me that people did hunt cranes. Just because growing up, it's like oh, you can't don't even don't even look at those cranes. Um, and so I am actually that's on my bucket list for next year. So I'll be I think I'm gonna head down to Oklahoma or or the Panhandle out there and get after that. But
3: yeah, it's fun, man. You, you'll have a great time um, doing it. And like I said, I mean it. Just you know, I was I just remember like looking at a pile of cranes. Wow, that's that is not that's not where I came from. Oh, is it cool? There was rarely ever a crane yeah, where, where I where I showed up on the East Coast growing up. So sometimes you you know I found myself in those situations where you're doing something, you're enjoying yourself, and then you just get this moment of reflection, like whoa, this is uh, this is pretty amazing that I'm getting to do this. So I think San cranes was was one of those. So now this will be a little bit um,
2: I don't non linear here in the question asking, um, but it did strike me yesterday um you guys you know western hunting and all the type of stuff that you do very physical um is there uh what's the do you guys ever work i, I never hear you guys t- talking about working out and i feel like it's something that waterfowlers they don't really i don't know you don't really have to work out too much to be a, a good waterfowl hunter um but uh it can definitely help in some cases but i was just curious what's the What's the workout culture like over there?
3: We all do it. I would say that, you know, Yanni, you know, Yannis Patelis is probably our mountain hiker workout guy um, around here. But we, we all, we all try to stay in shape. We all try to eat right when we can. We all try to maintain, you know, through all of the challenges of work-life balance and those types of things, we all try to maintain. So we all understand. I mean, yeah, uh, Ryan Kelly and I just went and shot a thing called the Vortex Challenge. Yeah, uh, last weekend, which is hot. You know, it's like a five or six mile run through the, you know, Sagebrush Country, Wyoming, some good, some hiking, and then you shoot different stages. And we we both felt like going into what we were talking about, man, we really haven't worked out enough going into this. But we we got there and we were great. We did we did really good, uh, both crushing hills, and and we're happy with with how we did. So. I think we kind of underestimate the amount that we actually do here when it comes to working out. You know, I think working out as like a hunting lifestyle is not something that we're into. We don't sit around and talk about, you know, lifting or running, sp- particularly for hunting. We just try to take care of ourselves and, and do everything that we can to be healthy. And then when it comes to season, you know, start hiking as much as you possibly can and try to simulate, you know, what hunting is. Um, as much as possible so uh, that's what we do and it's a good culture man we but we were we understand that this is all fun it's all of its fun every part of it should be fun so we, we've the cool thing about since I moved here to Bozeman and all of us have come together moved to the same town as we just have a ball every day and hopefully it shows by the amount of silly things that we do but um, yeah we yeah. have fun with almost every aspect of it
2: uh, I think it was uh, I think this morning or yesterday i can 't remember whenever your your most recent podcast uh where you were reading some uh some mean comments um that i i really that resonates <laughs> it's uh it's so funny um you know you 're sitting there and you put a lot of hard work and uh, you know attention and you know that 's time away from your your you know your family and i don't know you just put a lot of yourself into the podcast and into the uh the open Air of public forum, and then there's just some dude just waiting to pounce and let you know. (laughs) And
3: I just thought, I I mean, I was giggling like a little girl when we were doing that because it's just so. Once you do it, once you read it like that, you just realize one, it's just like that guy's right to say what he wants to say. I've never went online and like and left any kind of review like that, or probably never would. I just if I don't like something, I just don't listen to it. Um. But there's some people who just, that's, that's, they want to let their opinions know. And I can tell you that I do know, I understand that when you're listening to a podcast and you don't agree with whatever's being said, that it's, it gets frustrating, man, because you don't have any outlet to, to disagree with whatever's being said. You can't yell at the people talking. Yeah. You're, like, you radio or whatever.
2: You're handcuffed. Your, your mouth is tied up. Like you can't yeah. say anything. You're just screaming at your, uh, at your
3: steering mm-hmm. wheel. You're like, you're wrong. Yeah, and you want to say those things. And so I get that some people just turn it off. Other people listen all the way through and then and then level that kind of stuff. But it's, for me, it's, you know, I never thought my podcast would, anybody would listen to it. But, you know, now that more people are starting to, I think that just, it just comes with the territory. And you can't be, you can't be, you can't, you know, build that into your, the way you see yourself or your self-identity. Can't do it. I mean, it's just not something that, you know, all the good comments, they don't, they mean just as much as all the bad ones. So you just kind of have to, you know, internalize that and do the best with it that you can.
2: Yeah. Podcasting is such a, it's such a strange um, uh, medium because anybody can do it, which that's both good and bad. Um, but uh, it's just really weird that we have these hour long, hour and a half long conversations. Um people are giving your, their time to you when that's, that's a lie. They, you can never, <laughs> a person can make more money. Uh, a person can go get a new car, but they can't, uh, they can't make any more time. And so they're giving you, yeah. that's kind of weird.
3: Yeah, no, you're right. I mean, it's just so it's, it's, that's why I, I try to understand that too. People are taking two hours a week to listen to me talk about things. And th- that's going to manifest itself in ways that I don't even understand. So You just kind of have to under try, try to have some understanding of that interaction. It's new for me, new for the listener. There's going to be frustrations for them and they're just, it just is how it's going to be. So you can't really hold that against somebody if they get upset at something I say or they want to label me a certain way, good or bad. I mean, that's just, I think it's just part of the game. So it took me a while to get comfortable with that, but I'm obviously by my mean comment reading on the show. <laughs> I'm very comfortable with it now. Um I totally understand it and I encourage it because I think it's it's what it's all about at some level.
2: Yeah, yeah. And uh just one comment about your show from my seat. I am I'm on the Phil. I'm on the Phil train. I'm a fan of Phil.
3: Man. You're on the Phil train? I, got I did a lot of think, fans out there. I did
2: think he was like a forty five year old man though.
3: I truly did. did. You? Yeah, he has like that voice of a like a forty five year old accountant type. of yeah, voice, yeah, 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 for sure. And that's that's what I think Phil brings to the show. He just brings a he knows nothing about hunting, absolutely nothing. Just perfect. I mean, not even like nothing at all. <laughs> and it, so it's um.
2: Uh, it's I good imagine to have when, that voice when you guys head. hired him, uh, I imagine that his what his like
3: response was really or something. Yeah, like huh? The nature. Interesting. I'll do it. You yeah. know, yeah, and I never like when we hired him. He was just coming as our podcast engineer, and I never, no, there's never any intention. But then I met him. I'm like, "Oh, dude, you're perfect. <laughs> you're awesome." And so it's good to have a it's good to have somebody in the room to to give perspective when I'm when I'm being less than uh, effective with my <laughs> with my reasoning. Bill's a good a good leveler for our show.
2: All right, what? as we wind down here I uh, want to leave the the people uh thinking with, thinking about something what uh, are you most concerned about right now for our community of hunters and anglers and outdoors people
3: wait a minute phil just came in the room
2: oh no kidding
3: yeah Phil just came phil do you want to guest star on the foul front podcast we were just talking about you uh, sure, sure? <laughs> phil <laughs> phil <laughs> Phil, what do you what do you think about uh waterfowl hunting? I uh, think it's incredibly uh, underrated. He thinks it's underrated, he said. <laughs> Phil have you heard? All been? right. <laughs> well done, Phil. Yeah. Um, so uh, back to what the serious question you had, what was it? Uh what
2: is what is the topic of concern for you right now? Like what are you most concerned about for our community of hunters and anglers?
3: Yeah, there's a lot of things. Um I, I would say there's two main things. One of them and I think just I I hate to speak for all hunters and anglers. I, I can speak for myself. I have a lot of experience with within our community and uh, so I, I speak for myself two things I'm concerned about. One is the lack of knowledge of, of the history of of what we do, um, from a conservation sense, particularly. It's not built into every hunter that you need to know this story. It just isn't. Um, it's not on our, you know, it's not in our, uh, get our rule books. It's not printed on a card for every hunter. Um, it wasn't passed down to me as a child. I, I would guess that it's not passed down to most people. And it, and it is a, an incredible story. Um, when it comes to wildlife and conservation. And if you really start to look at it, it is, it is amazing. And what we have done as hunters is amazing. What we're part of now, what was set up for us what we now steward into the future is freaking amazing. And it's, it's, it's around the world. Um, it's one of the best systems to conserve wildlife and and wild places that there is. And so, you know, I wish it was taught in schools. I wish, you know, more people understood what this really was. Cause the more I've dug into it over the last couple of years, the more I've been, you know, jaw droppingly amazed at at the people and what they did and how long it's lasted and what kind of we have on our shoulders to keep going. And so, <clears throat> I think that's one thing, um, one very important thing that we can all do is, is, you know, try to just understand the history of what we're a part of. Um, that's very important. And then the second one would just be, as we were talking about earlier, you know, embracing um, our differences and understanding that you know, we need to have dialogues and we can't just retreat into our corners when it comes to politics or, you know, or even in the hunting community, like I'm a crossbow guy, you're a trad bow guy. I'm a, you know, just retreating into our corners all the time to kind of only believe one thing and only hang around people that believe exactly what we believe and never challenge ourselves. I think that's dangerous too. So, um, hopefully that's two important things that a lot of things that I think about on a daily basis.
2: Yeah. I think we get a little caught up in, uh, not realizing that we are all in the very same small side of the bell curve uh when it comes to opinions on hunting and that it's you know the fights that we're having with each other are not important to so much um or with the other end of the bell curve that that might not be very important either but it's everybody in the middle that is kind of apathetic that's the real um that's the real danger
3: yeah yeah for sure i mean we you know, I uh, talk about how I just, I think about hunting all the time. It's something that, that I've just, my life is kind of consumed with. And I just don't like, part of me is like, I don't understand why you, everybody else doesn't feel the same way I feel. Cause yeah. if they just did it the way that I did it, they would feel that way. Um And so, yeah, you got to have to fight that urge and say, okay, there are a lot of people coming from a lot of different angles yeah. and to understand, you know, to, to be real corny about it. That's, that's what, why I call the podcast, my podcast, The Hunting Collective, because I just think that understanding everyone's perspective, the collective perspective, one by one, podcast by podcast, if we were able to understand perspectives that we didn't understand before, then that, that'll give us a, a, a better chance to, you know, understand why we're doing what we're doing if we can compare it to other people, um, other interesting folks. So, yeah. I think that's what what I've tried to do and, and try to have fun along the way.
2: Last thing I got, what, what can we be looking forward from your end uh, of things over here? What, what's, what's on the horizon?
3: Yeah, man. You know what? I'm trying to, um, take that vegan slash hunter conversation on the road. I, I really want to take that to theaters and have that conversation and have Q and A's around it and really just bring that kind of conversation out to the light. I think of all the things I've done within the podcast space, at least that's been the one that really, I think hit hit people over the head the most and i spent a lot of time over the last weeks talking about it talking i try to answer every email and every dm and every comment i can and i spent a lot of time thinking and talking about it and i think it's hits home with people that it's a it's a very important thing so we're gonna try try to take that on the road to a theater near you if we can we'll see how that works um so that's in the plans but then hunting season then um got an antel- antelope hunt next week and then elk season in montana and Is that what Uh, you got up
2: first is uh, antelope?
3: Yep. Next week in Wyoming, antelope uh, with a bow. And then this will be my first September as a resident elk hunter in Montana. So I imagine I'll enjoy that immensely. And then um, a bunch of other stuff this fall that'll, that'll be filmed for, for the media YouTube channel and film for other things. Um, So it will be fun, man. It's fun to, I get to live, live my dream. Um, I'm grateful for it, man. It's, it's, it's a fun thing.
2: Awesome. Awesome. Well, Hey, I appreciate you uh, for everything, especially with the connection uh, with Phil there. That was great. Um, and uh, we got Ben O'Brien, uh, the hunting collective out of the meat eater, the, the hunting director at uh meat eater. And uh, what do you got for a final comment for the listeners of the foul front Ben?
3: Um, Keep doing what you're doing. If you're listening to this, you're so hardcore into waterfowl that you are listening to dudes talk about it for hours on end. Um, that's a good sign, I feel. <laughs> I feel that it's a good sign for your personality and what you feel like is important. So keep doing it. All right, Ben. Hey, appreciate it a lot. All right. Steve Nell just walked in. He's kicking me out. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> We're going to go out. and fight Hey,
2: you ever been sitting in front of your TV just wondering why you can't catch the latest episode of The Foul Front right there in your living room, so you can press all your guests and family with your fine taste in podcast listening? Me neither. But hey, as a part of the Waypoint Outdoor Collective, you can now find The Foul Front and some other great podcasts on your Apple TV, your Roku, your Amazon Fire Stick, smart TV, even your gaming console, just by downloading the Waypoint app. And heck, while you are there, they got over twenty five hundred hunting and fishing shows on demand. Go download the Waypoint app today. Four in the
3: morning. Join me, Chef Jean Paul Bourgeois, and the whole crew here at Duck Camp Dinners every Monday at 8 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV. Birds up in the sky.